Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Mitch Gold is today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast. Mitch has made a lifelong commitment to helping patients with cancer, stemming from the loss of his mother to breast cancer when he was just four years old. He was the president and CEO of Dendrion, a biotech company that created a treatment for prostate cancer for 10 years. Now he's the managing partner of Alpine BioVentures and the co-founder of Alpine Immune Sciences. Alpine has received nearly $100 million in funding to help fight against cancer and autoimmune disease. Mitch has been named Entrepreneur of the Year, Top Influencer in Medicine, and Runner-Up for Smartest CEO by Fortune Magazine. He's an incredible husband, a father, and a friend. Welcome, Mitch. Hi, Shauna. <laughs> that was a very nice introduction. Oh, well, I mean, what's the runner-up? Because when I read about this, I was like runner-up to Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos. I know. Who would ever say they're the runner-up? I know. When you're runner-up to those guys. Well, that's why I had to clarify that because you're not a runner-up type. But I'm like, holy shit, dude. Nice work. Yeah, no, that was um, that was a time when... Um, you know, the field of immunotherapy was just getting started, and I think the concept of using the immune system to get cancer was very novel. It was a long journey at Dendrion that we kind of decided that we were going to move this program forward, and at the end of it, we proved that you can use the immune system to fight cancer, and as a result, I got the runner-up award. <laughs> the runner-up. <laughs> First, second place. Yeah. That's awesome. To, okay, so to, we're, to the iPhone. I know you listened to the Dan Levitan podcast. I don't know if you've listened to any others, but I'm going to start with Rapid Fire, so you know that's coming. You ready? You ready. Okay. What's your dream place to go heli skiing? Hmm. I would say snow water heli skiing outside of Nelson, B.C., because the terrain is great, but the people are even better. All right. Okay. If you could be from any other decade, which would it be? Like if you were born in any other decade? If I could be born in any other decade. Yeah. Uh, I like the decade I was born in, the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Peace, yeah. love, namaste. Okay, favorite thing about being from the Midwest? The people. There's a authenticity of the people in the Midwest that's just infectious. And um, while I think it's kind of lacked in terms of bringing innovative products into the, into the world, the people there are amazing. Yeah. Everyone from the Midwest talks about how authentic they are. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> like, we're not that authentic. You know, like, you have to say it? I'm just kidding. But it is true. I love people from the Midwest. Okay. Are you a paper guy or computer? Both. Yeah. So yeah. how do you... I mean, if I'm going to read a long article that has is science-based, then I'll use paper, right? Yeah. Because I want to outline it and highlight it. That's but you're good. not paperless. You don't live in like a paperless office. No. Yeah. Matter of fact, there's papers all over my office. I want to see. Yeah. I can't believe I've not seen your mm -hmm. office. Um, okay. What is the first thing that you notice about someone when you first meet them? Their smile. You have a good one. Yeah. Um, okay. And you have good teeth. I've always <laughs> noticed that. You have really good teeth. Um, what TV sitcom family would you be a member of? <laughs> you like that? You didn't, you didn't tell me these were coming, Sean. I know. Well, that's why they call it rapid fire. Uh, the Jetsons. <laughs> the Jetsons. Okay. Um, what are you currently studying or learning about? 
I think I'm really interested in kind of where humanity is going. I really feel like um, we were talking about this before we started the podcast. I really think we're at this rapid inflection point in terms of where we are on the technical innovation curve. And I feel like it's, we're at such a logarithmic phase that I think humanity is having a hard time keeping up with it. And I think everybody wants to continue to advance society, both in terms of climate change and healthcare, et cetera. But I think there's an unseen cost to that. And I'm worried about that. I want to hear your thoughts on it. I need to learn from you. Um, okay. We're going to talk about this too, because you know that I'm obsessed with how you parent and how you are as a dad to your three boys. But what do you love most about being a dad? You know, um, being a father is like by far and away the most rewarding thing. You know, it started off when I was teaching the kids to play football and sports when they were younger. And you're kind of the mentor to them and you help them grow. And it's been fun to see that flip, right? Whereas opposed to you being the mentor for your kids, where your kids end up really taking the leadership role and kind of bringing you forward. So oh, I love that. And so my oldest son, Aiden, when he was uh, in college, we decided we were going to take some educational trip somewhere. So we started off initially with going to a forum at The Economist to learn about kind of global economic <laughs> issues. And he's not even a nerd. That was my choice. But then he got to pick one. And he picked one that uh, he introduced me to Ray Kurzweil, who, as you know, is kind of a key innovator um, at Google and has come up with this concept of the singularity where humans and computers become one. And so we went to this global singularity conference, Singularity University in San Francisco for a week. Yeah, I've heard that's amazing. And it was incredible because it was the only conference I had ever been to where you saw physicians kind of deal with global healthcare issues and kind of what's going to happen in society over time. You saw kind of challenges with the uh, climate change that were going on and then how we're going to deal with that through space travel. So you kind of saw this convergence of overpopulation, healthcare, and how we're going to live on a different planet all come together. I, I just read that there's like some other planet they discovered this morning. Maybe what? we should just go. It was called something weird, like P962. It had like a number. How old, how old would we be when we get there? I don't know. Just take me with you wherever <laughs> yeah. you go. I got your number on speed dial. If you could live on any other planet, Shauna. I don't know anything about planets. That's not my thing. What? I don't know. <laughs> Jupiter? <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, so let's get started because you and I will just talk for hours um, and not get any information out to the podcast. So you're from the Midwest, which I know, Chi-Town, mm -hmm. right? And so what was your childhood like there? I grew up in a relatively affluent suburb of North Chicago called Highland Park. I was surrounded by families that had done very well, and they all had raised their kids to be kind of high achievers. I grew up in kind of a middle-class family in, mm -hmm. in that part of town. So I was by far not kind of of the affluent phenotype. Mm -hmm. My did, uh, that, did that kind of drive you to fuel you to be like, I, I deserve totally. to have a place here? It drove me, but I also saw kind of the skill sets that you needed to be successful, right? Because you kind of modeled yourself through vicarious learning after parents that you had kind of really respected. Mm -hmm. um, and my dad had uh, taken over a business that my grandfather had started. So my grandfather had started one of the first uh, condom manufacturing businesses. Condom? Uh -huh. Like rubbers? <laughs> rubbers, yeah. It was called <laughs> nice. Prozac. Yeah, it was a direct competitor to Trojans. Oh, okay. And so that was like, I was the star of high school because I oh, was able to- Oh, of course. To, I was Free condoms for <laughs> <Yeah>. all. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Okay, I did not know that. And so your mom and dad, um, I know that we talked about it in the intro, that your mom passed away. She was so young. Yeah, it was- And you were so young. Yeah. So my mom- um, who unfortunately, you know, I didn't get to know that well. She died when I was four, just about to turn five. And she died when she was 26 years old. 
And she, was it fast? Like she found that she had breast cancer and then... It was, it's a great, um, really, uh, identification of kind of where society has come. So my mom uh, died of breast cancer when she was 26. She went into the doctor in 1971 with a lump in her breast. And the doctor said, look, you're 25 years old. There's no way you can have breast cancer. And no history. No, her mother had died of breast cancer. Mm. And they didn't know at that time that there was a gene that linked Ashkenazi Jews called the BRCA mutation mm-hmm. to having a high risk of breast cancer. Now, that's obviously very well known. It shows how far we've come over, you know, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And how, have, how has your dad or your family kept her memory alive so that you know her? Yeah. You know? She's been a, a constant influence in my life. So all of my companies, um, her name was Andrea Lynn Paradise. So people think I name my companies Alpine Bioventures, Alpine Immune Sciences, um, you know, after my love of skiing in the mountains. But I would have thought that. Yeah, but they're all actually named after her. They're her initials. Oh, yeah. So, I didn't realize that. Um, and she, she always kind of had this belief. She taught me, I think, that um, that was a devastating time for me. And frankly, when I was four or five years old and she passed away, I was... It was a deep, dark period for me, and it took me a while to kind of emerge from that and mm-hmm. really kind of understand that good things can come from it. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of flipped it on its head, and as opposed to being a big loss, it became a big motivator. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was 13, I lost both my uh, paternal grandmother and my paternal grandfather to cancer. My maternal grandmother had already died from breast cancer when she was young. And so I made this commitment to my father that I was going to dedicate my life to trying to cure cancer. That's incredible, and I love. I've heard you speak about it, and I've read about it. But you have to kind of have a an interest in it, not just like, "Hey, I want to change the world," but also like, "I want to do this." You've dedicated your whole life, a lot of time. You enjoy it, yeah. right? I think what the amazing thing is is once you get your mind set on something and you can visualize it, you can accomplish a lot. So whether that's creating an electric car or traveling to a different planet or trying to use the immune system to fight cancer. That's because that's your Mitch Cold. <laughs> Not everybody thinks like that. Like, that's so you. Well, I think that the mind is a powerful tool. And I really believe that if you believe that you can accomplish something and you're tenacious about it, and I mm-hmm. think that tenacity is a key trait for success, I think you can, you can accomplish a tremendous amount. Well, yeah. And so in high school, you were taking classes to prepare yourself to think like big picture? I mean, how did this you know, work itself out so, from 13 to... That's a great story. So, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of leadership in terms of around the house about pursuing academic career. So I was actually not a very good student. As a matter of fact, by when I was a freshman in high school, I think I was getting all D's and E's. Don't listen to this, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I had zero, if any, interest in kind of, um, you know, going into academics and certainly not hardcore scientific research like we're doing now. And I was playing football, and someone on the football team kind of pulled me aside who was a bright kid. His name was Peter Zylas. And he said, hey, look, I believe in you. Uh, I want you to play football, but you got to start studying. And he's like, we can get straight A's, and if we get straight A's, we can do whatever we want with our lives. And I dedicated myself to really buckling down. I never got, I don't think I ever got a B after that. Uh, I was Where is a, Peter now? Peter now. <laughs> Peter, Peter, take some credit for this. Yeah, well, Peter. He produced quite the. Peter now is in Chicago. Okay. And um, works for the family that invented the uh, barcoding system. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you decided to go to school and then what did you study at school? Undergrad? Well, Peter and I both committed that we were going to both be doctors together. And so he went to Michigan and I went to Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wisconsin registered the day before Michigan. or I think it actually was the same day. And I had registered for all my pre-med classes and he was going to go register for his pre-med classes. 
And I called him up that day and I said, I got, I got all my classes. And he said, yeah, I decided I wasn't going to do pre-med. And he, <laughs> he went into business. And he ended up going business. Yeah. Okay. How did you decide to pursue urology? Urology? Well, like, uh, and the rotation of residents. Tell us how that works. Well, you know, um, first off, you know, I wanted to be a doctor, yeah. right? And then when I was, you know, you have to do these internships when you're an undergrad. So I did right. an internship with a guy named um, V.C. Jordan who discovered a drug called tamoxifen, which is one of the mainstays of breast cancer treatment today. And I became enamored with this kind of intersection of medicine and business, which was pharmaceutical drug development. And so that was always in my mind. I'm like, this this is pretty interesting. Like, you can really do a lot of things with this type of technique. And um, so I, but I kind of was on the path. And it's very hard once you're locked into a particular path to stray from it. Yeah. Right. And we're all in that in our careers. And one of the key pieces of advice that I always give my kids is don't get stuck in your careers. Like, don't just stay on the path because it's the most comfortable thing mm-hmm. to do. Find ways to get off of it where you can kind of go pursue really novel ideas. And so I was on that medical school track, but I became super enamored about drug development. And I went to medical school at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's in Chicago, and I met a guy named Paul Merrick at that point who was kind of the head of the urology residency. And he said, hey, you should come be a urologist, and he kind of brought you in, and he made you feel like you were a colleague and one of the guys, and mm-hmm. um, that got me interested in urology. And it was a surgical subspecialty. Which, I'm laughing. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm laughing because our family friend was a urologist growing up, and we called him the pecker checker. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard it all. Well, that's why, you know, Goldfinger. Yeah. <laughs> God. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry I got distracted. Keep going. <laughs> no, and so you have to go, uh, you know, you meet people, and they kind of bring you in a certain fields, right? This, it's the people you it's meet. It's always about people. It's 100% about people. Always. About, my yeah. whole career, my whole life is all about people, yeah. and yours too. Yeah. Everything you've said so far is like, oh, this person said this to me. Oh, there's. they me. say there's like a handful, handful of people that really determine mm-hmm. how your life goes, right? I mean, yeah. Palm Eric is one of them. Um, um, there's been a number of others along yeah. the way. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so then you're in urology. I'm in urology, and then um, I match out here to come to Seattle, Washington in the early 90s. And you're like, where is that? No, I interviewed at two places. Well, I interviewed at every place. I was top, I was highly ranked in my class. My studious skills kept with me after Peter taught me how to be a good student, and I could pretty much choose where I wanted to go to residency. Um, and uh, I was getting married to Don at the time, and it was Donnie. either good. You met Donnie in college, right? We met in college, but we did not date in college. Yeah. We started dating after college when I was at in medical school. And um, uh, I was either going to go to USC or I was going to come to University of Washington. And uh, I said, you pick. I'm going to be working all the time. And at that point, her brother was living here. She's like, I'd like to live in Seattle. So I ranked Seattle number one. And, nice. And I came out here in 1993. And it was a, I mean, you know, because you grew up here. Uh, Seattle was a very different place yeah. in the early 90s. Sleepy town. Yeah, totally. And so, well, also, you're so outdoorsy that I would imagine that this kind of fed some of that, being 45 minutes from skiing or being able to get to the water pretty quickly. Yeah, I was super into mountain biking yeah. at the time, and I was into skiing, but not the same type of skiing that I do now. Yeah. And um, But I really... The different tri- than Watts. Yeah. It was very uh, into um, the the chairman at the University of Washington was a guy named Paul Lang, who I'm still very close with. And we meet for breakfast and talk about a number of different issues, you know, every quarter. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was someone who inspired me. As a matter of fact, when I was in my residency, I had started a business that was putting healthcare records on the Internet in 1995. Oh, very ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, way ahead. Where of, are we now? Don't right? be don't be that far ahead of the curve. But oh yeah, my we, gosh, we were way ahead of the curve, and uh, and frankly, physicians didn't even have internet access at the yeah. time, so we had to go to 
the local telephone provider and get DSL That's lines. a brilliant idea. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? So after your residency, then what happened? You wanted to stay in Seattle? Well, no. So when I was a second-year resident, I started this business that was putting healthcare records on the Internet, and it grew and grew and grew. Um, and eventually, we had like 80-some people working at the company, but I was still a full-time resident. And uh, that was quite the challenge. And it was putting stress on my marriage. It was putting stress on uh, the work I was doing with patients at the hospital. And finally, my chairman, first he said, look, just take Wednesdays off. Go work on your business. And the rest of the time, you know, you have to be a resident here. That lasted for a couple of months. And then he said, how about take six months off? See if it works. Just focus on your business. And then if you want, you can come back. And that type of... That's a gift. It was an amazing gift, which is why we're so close today. I never would have been able to do what I've done if it wasn't for my chairman at the time, Pauline. And did you always know that you had that entrepreneurial bug? Because totally. sometimes doctors are, it's like a different part of the brain, the way that doctors describe themselves. Like, I'm a doctor, I'm not a business person, but you're both. No, when I was in college, I would hang, you know, condom vending machines in all the bars and we'd pull quarters out of it. And that, that, was our, that was our beer money for the week. And then we used to go around paving people's, you know, driveways for yeah. them and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I love kind of the... What I love about business is it takes a vision, and then you have to execute on it, right? And uh, what I really learned to love about business now is it takes a team. And yeah. so it's the people that you work with that ends up making it the most fun. And sometimes, you know, it can be challenging, too, mm-hmm. managing a team. But and really, those, in those days when you were like, okay, it's a stress on the marriage. I've, maybe I'm going to take six months off and maybe build this business, go do the residency. Like, what was fueling your energy at that time? I just felt like... Um, you know, in 1990, I felt like, you know, the internet had just come out and I felt like um, I couldn't not be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had this unique kind of insight because we had healthcare expertise that we had this ability to kind of impact this intersection between technology and healthcare to make a real difference. Now it's like you see it all over the oh, place, yeah. right? Now medical Health records tech, yeah. Yeah, are all over the internet. So what happened with that company? That company ended up getting bought by a company which became a division of General Electric. And then was that so? That was a good thing. For it was you. a great thing for us. I stayed there for a year. Uh, I hated it. I couldn't mm-hmm. wait to get out. I started looking around, um, and you know, frankly, the, the funny story is, I wanted to get into biotech after that, and uh, started looking at a variety of different jobs. I actually sent an application to Dendrion, applying for a job there, and I never. What was the job you were applying for? Applying for, I think, it was a business development job at the time. And no one you ever. You would have crushed that. <laughs> well, uh, and I never got. I never got an interview back. They never call me, and so... Did you just send it in cold? I did. I sent it in cold, yeah. and um, no one ever got back to me. should have used fuel talent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was in New York at the time. And uh, one thing leads to another. I'm at a healthcare internet conference in New Orleans, and I'm flying back, and I'm sitting next to a guy on the plane, and this guy, Mark Monet, and I say to him, hey, I really want to get into this company called Dendrion. And he's like, oh, it's so funny. I'm an analyst at a bank in New York. And I actually covering, covering Dendrion. Oh my god! And I'll make an introduction to the CEO for you, which was Chris Henney. And a week later, I had a job there running business development. So you were running business development, and how did you go from that to running the company? The company, uh, Chris Henney, who is a legend in the biotech industry here locally, he uh, was one of the key immunologists along with Steve Gillis at the Hutch, and mm-hmm. they discovered really cytokines and the whole field of immunology was really burgeoning under their leadership had this idea of kind of starting a company um, in the 80s, which became Aminex. And uh, Chris kind of led that charge, and Chris kind of taught me, that he brought me on board. He said, look, you run business development, but I'm not going to stay here forever. Um, you know, at some point, you know, the CEO job is going to open up, and I can't guarantee it, but there may be an opportunity for you to become CEO. And so 
one thing led to another, and the company ran into some challenges around 2001. Mm-hmm. What did Dendrion do? Like, when you started, and what did they do when you left? It never changed. So when I started, uh, the concept was, you know, for years, uh, this concept of using the immune system to fight cancer was one that was kind of around since uh, really the 50s and 60s. The first guy to think about it was this guy named Coley. He would uh, inject you with kind of bacterial toxins underneath your skin, and you would get these bad infections. And uh, surgeons realized in the 1800s that the patients that got the most serious infections after surgery ended up having the most significant regressions of their cancers because mm. you were activating the immune system. So Dendrion had this concept that they would take your cells outside of your body, activate them with the protein, and then reinfuse your own activated T cells to fight the cancer. And no one, no one believed that that ever was going to work. That was kind of such a long shot. Um, and Chris was a believer. He moved it forward. He took the company public. And um, the company ran into some challenges in 2001. I took it over and dug through the data and found a pathway forward for the company. And, you know, 13 years later, we have a drug called Provenge that's doing $400 million in revenue, helping thousands of prostate cancer patients a year. But much more importantly than that, mm-hmm. really started the whole field of immunotherapy and, frankly, put Seattle on the map for being kind of the leader in cellular therapy. So that was the genesis of Juno and Lyle and all these companies that you see in Seattle now were really a result of Dendrion kind of kicking the can down the road and proving it could be done. And what what types of lessons did you learn through like the good times and the bad at Dendrion? Um, that uh, nothing happens without a you know, significant amount of friction. There was a lot of disbelief. Uh, I was a very young CEO. I think I was. You were one, 35, right? I was like 35 or 36. Let's not date you. He's, you look like 35 right now. <laughs> you know, it's just the sunshine and the mountains. Yes. yes. Um, but uh, it was it was tough because you know we were we were way ahead of the curve. A lot of people didn't believe we can do it. I was frankly an inexperienced CEO at the time, but I was like a dog with a bone in his mouth. I, there was no way I wasn't going to let this company win. So I fought tooth and nail to make it happen. Uh, we had a great team there, uh, Liz Smith, Rob Hirschberg, Mark Froelich. Those were really key people that uh, were able to kind of operationally move the company forward and believed in it. And mm-hmm. it really changed the whole field at the end of the day. And what it taught me was that um, sometimes you, you don't have to make things as a CEO so difficult, right? You can um, Things can move forward with less friction, but it needs leadership and you need great people around you. Mm-hmm. And so when you say that it was making an impact on prostate cancer, what were you using to measure that? Yeah. Well, initially they were trying to see if the tumor was just growing, right? It turned out that that wasn't the best endpoint for cancer immunotherapies. People didn't know it at the time. Uh, but the better endpoint was actually the one that's most obvious, which is, are you living longer? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a novel concept, believe it or not. Uh, you know, Prolonging survival was not an endpoint that the FDA typically looked at. It was the most important endpoint, but it took a long time to get there. Mm-hmm. The, typically, companies were going after, can you just stop the tumor from growing? And we were the first company to really show in the prostate cancer space that we can get patients to live longer on an immunotherapy. And um, that concept was new, and that really changed the whole field. So now all the immunotherapy trials are based on survival. Yeah, the the whole concept of it, and especially prostate cancer, because I've had family members with it, and I didn't really pay attention until it hit home. And Mm -hmm. I realized, like, all men 
eventually get it if they don't die from something else. Is that true? Well, all men will eventually get prostate cancer, but I always say there's two different kinds of prostate cancer. There's the turtles, which are relatively slow, and you're probably going to die. They literally call them the turtles? Or that's your term? I call them the turtles. Okay, I didn't know if that was not good. Oh, the turtles? I didn't know about the turtles. Okay. The the turtles are these slow-growing prostate cancers in you know, relatively old men that are not going to kill them. And then you get the rabbits that go very fast. So, mm-hmm. But cancer in general, like, you know, cancer is an interesting disease, right? So, you know, back in the 60s, right, Nixon said, you know, we're going to start the war on cancer. And he committed, well, I think it was in 1972, he said, put money into the NCI and said, we're going to cure cancer in a decade. And 10 years later, when we hadn't made a real dent in cancer, people got discouraged. Um, and I think that mindset has changed, right, in this attempt to try to cure cancer, which we may do, I think the real shift has been, can you kind of turn it into a chronic disease like we've done with HIV? Um, so cancer to me is like one of the most important things as a society 100%. we need to focus on. Right? Well, everyone's been touched by it. Yeah. I don't know anybody that's not been touched by it. Um, okay, just let's go back for one second, because I feel like I've not really heard of many people doing the transition from being a doctor to being a full-blown hardcore. I mean, you're not just a business person. Now you're an investor, and you've got all sorts of things that you've touched on the business front. Have you ever looked back and said, maybe I should have been a doctor? Never. Never. No, never. No, I feel Because really... you're my friend I think yeah. of as, like, I called. There's, like, a doctor question. <laughs> like, you've stayed, you've stayed relevant in that way. I feel like half my business is being a venture capitalist and CEO, and the other half is helping people. They have some bad diagnosis. Yeah. Well, also help. because I think that so many people, you're such a good person and you've done so much for other people that you've got a nice network of friends and colleagues who would do anything for you. And so I also think of you as like, God forbid something happened, I'd call Mitch yeah. and you would know who to who to tap into. It's funny how many calls I get, you know, for that type of help. But You are definitely you know. that person. I've called you and I know that you're dealing right now with a good friend, a mutual friend that's sick. How do you remove yourself from what you're doing on the business front and like the personal side of how cancer really truly impacts people. You know, if I have a really close friend like I do now who's dying from a very bad form of brain cancer, um, you still keep your clinician's hat on most of the time because you have to, I mean, you don't want to totally do that, but you want to make sure that you're making the best decisions for them um, when you can. And sometimes when emotions come into play, that gets tougher. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have a vast network of physicians that I, you know, reach out to. And in this case, um, you know, I've been closely involved with him and helping guide his care with his wife. And, you know, when we are, we're only on this planet for, what, 75, 80 years in today's format. Mm-hmm. So um, you have to make every second count. And what this individual has taught me is live life with purpose. And when it's time for you to die, uh, you look around and you see all the people you've impacted along the way. And he certainly has that to reflect on. Yeah, that's it's incredible. Do you think that... Like where medicine is going right now and where everything and innovation is going right now that you feel confident that we're going in the right direction? Yeah, I guess I'd I'd ask you a question. How old do you think your great-grandchildren will live to be? I hope they'll, I mean, I in my head, I keep thinking that everybody's going to just, every generation's going to live a little bit longer than the one before us. So my great-grandchildren, I hope to like 100. Yeah. I mean, I used to think that, I think that, there's a key piece of technology that's come out, and that's called CRISPR. So this, you know, for, like, humans have been on the planet for, do you know how long? Don't ask me that type of question. Take, take a guess. Of your, uh, I, I don't know. Okay. So humans have been on the planet for about 200,000 years. 200,000 years. Yeah. Okay. And the planet's been around for about 4 billion years. So we're here for like, you know, a relatively short period of time. And all the species over the last 200,000 years 
has evolved from external pressures, right? So food sources, the need to develop bigger brains, the need to develop new tool sets to hunt and everything, right? So we've always developed from external pressures as a species. But for the first time in the history of our species, we're now going to be able to change our evolution. So as opposed to be evolving as a species from external pressures, like the environment, we can now use a tool called CRISPR to actually edit our genes and determine what we look like as a species. I don't like that. No, yeah, that's a scary thing to think about. I don't like, like that. We, that yeah. makes that's like creepy. Yeah. Don't you think? But I think it's something that... I mean, you, it's cool, but it's super creepy. There's ethical concerns about 100%. introducing gene editing. Like, yeah, you're going to select the smartest kids who's going to get course. access to it. But I can tell you without question that there's no getting around it. It'll start off with uh, starting to cure diseases like my mom had. So my sister, right, when she was 30-some years old, uh, got tested to see if she had the BRCA mutation mm-hmm. like my mother, and she had it. I so didn't know she that. she did have it. So she had bilateral mastectomies, ophorectomy, um, and she's at risk for other cancers downstream. And so that's a pretty you know mutilatory event to go through having your breasts removed, going into menopause in your you know late thirties. Mm-hmm. But in the future, we'll just test the babies in utero and we'll edit out the gene. So that, to me, that's a great natural application for that type of technology. Once it gets applied in humans, and by the way, China's already doing this. Right? But you're talking about it like. After the fact versus saying, I I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but versus what we're talking about is like being proactive about like, I'll take one of those and one of those and I'll put them together and try to create the perfect human being. That's going to happen. That's the thing that scares me. The pulling out the bad gene. But it starts with it starts with a natural application, right? It's kind of like cosmetic surgery. Right. <laughs> right. So it starts with that. And then but the important part is we will evolve as a species and we can live to 100, 120 years old. And you see, like my son, Aiden, now is working at a company called Genesis, where they're actually using this technique on pigs and they're taking pig organs and they're actually taking out all the immunomodulatory proteins and the porcine retroviruses. And the pigs will now be natural replacement organs for you. They'll be matches to your own organs. So you'll be able to use them for kidneys. So we could heart. do like organ donors. Could be a pig? It could be a pig. And but... when is this available? <laughs> really? <laughs> well, you have to ask Aiden that question. But it's, you know, it's, it's within the next 10 years, right? So it's relatively soon. I, was, I would ask you this question. When do you, like, do you use an iPhone? Yes. When do you think the first iPhone came out? On, wasn't it like 97 or something? 2007. I mean, 2007. 2007. Yeah, 2007, which feels like... Forever ago. Can you imagine, like, what phone did you have before the iPhone? Blackberry. Okay. I was a me big, too. major Blackberry person. Yeah, me too. And I never thought, I remember talking to my friends... I couldn't get rid of my Blackberry Could not get rid of my Blackberry. Yeah. So, like, we're going to, like, the species is going to evolve very rapidly. And we're not, so what I was telling you earlier is... We're not going to continue to look the way we are. Like, we're going to be a species that looks much different. We're going to be able to fight diseases before they occur. Um, we're probably going to be able to, you know, you talked about going to, you know, other planets. The biggest issue with going to other planets is exposure to UV radiation because we're closer to the sun. And so we'll be able to engineer in UV resistance in our genes. And so we will be able to go to other planets. We may be able to survive in low oxygen environments. Do you, do you want this type of world? I mean, like, right now... Can you see living another, whatever, yeah. seventy another seventy years? I would love to live another seventy years if I could have this the ability to, be, to live this quality of life, and I think that's possible. I think we're at this um, unnatural point on the uh, innovation curve where humans don't have the ability to keep up with innovation. And I thought, like you know, when I looked at kind of life expectancy, I, I thought we'd be up into the you know mid eighties, right? 
And I think for the last two years as a country in North America, we've stepped back. Like Canada has a longer life expectancy than we do. I did right? not realize that. And, and the reason is um, the reason we're stepping back is because I think we're not able to keep up with innovation. And what's causing these deaths? Why is, it, why is the life expectancy going down? And I think one of the main drivers of that is kind of societal pressures. Like all the social media that's out there now is causing people to think about how do they keep up. And so you're seeing more death from suicide at young age. Anxiety, more, depression. Opioid deaths, yeah. So that's a big challenge that I think we're going to need to grapple with as we kind of, and as a society, like if humans can't keep up with the innovation curve, then humans will probably be replaced by some syngenetic organism that's a blend between computers and humans, I, right? That are, <laughs> that, I feel like I'm like getting scared. Can we get a cocktail? Open that whiskey. Yeah. You're freaking me out. Yeah, we need to open that whiskey. We need to open the whiskey. I brought, yeah. I brought Mitch some whiskey. Um, Okay. So um, can we switch subjects? Because I really am like, I'm sweating. Yeah, it's because the air conditioning's not on. <laughs> um, so tell me about Alpine. You said it was named after your mom's initials. And how did you come up with the idea? Like a lot of people would have been like, hey, I made some money. I'm good. I'm going to go ski and take the family and go chill. But you're so driven and focused. And not only have you done that, but now you're doing the venture capital yeah, Side. well, we've we've done a number of companies out of the venture firm. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we did Alpine Biosciences, uh, which was one of the first companies that we funded, which was a piece of technology that we licensed from Sandia National Labs, which is a lab from the uh, Department of Defense, and it was a nanoparticle system to kind of deliver proteins directly to cells, and we sold that. What does that mean? Tell me in like layman's you know. terms. Yes, like you're talking to layman. One of the biggest challenges is delivering therapeutics directly to the cells types that you want to get them to and not okay. giving them systemically. So with nanoparticles, which are basically small little particles, you can potentially target them to specific cell types. Okay. That company we started, and within nine months, we had an offer for it to be bought, and we, we Cascadian Therapeutics bought it, and we sold it to them. And they're now part of a local company here called Seattle Genetics. Got it. Um, another company we started uh, was a company called Mabu. It was head of you know, fabulous management team behind it, Mike Gallatin, Clayton Knox, Greg Deitch. Uh, we founded that company with Fraser Healthcare to find a way to create an orally available way to upregulate your immune system for cancer. Very specific pathway in the immune system. Uh, it, was, it was really betting on the team. So what does that mean exactly? So I'm a person with cancer. And so you have two different arms of your immune system. So, you know, the species has been around for 200,000 years. Over the first, call it 100,000 years, we only had one type of immunity. It was called innate immunity. It's like you see something bad, you kill it right away. Uh, the more kind of um, recent form of immunity as a species that we've developed is adaptive immunity, where you use cell types and antibodies to kind of fight off bad pathogens like bacteria and viruses. Mavu was focused on innate immunity, okay. okay? And that's been more of a challenge to kind of drug that pathway. They found a way to do it. Uh, the company just got bought by a company in Chicago called Abbey. So that, that, those have been two successful exits for the fund. That's great. Um, How big is the fund? Can you talk about that? The fund, we haven't disclosed it, but okay. the fund is mostly uh, people you would know around town yeah. and uh, in the biotech industry uh, that are limited partners, and we kind of manage the portfolio for them. And what's your goal with the fund? The, well, the, I mean, aside from successful exits. The bigger goal with the fund is to find, uh, to really kind of fund the next generation of biotech entrepreneurs, but really to make a bigger impact on science as a whole. So we didn't really kind of get into it to go after one particular field, although my expertise is in immuno-oncology. Uh, my partner with the fund is someone named Jay Venkatesen, who's down in, um, we got this fly flying around here, <laughs> um, 
uh, who's down in the Bay Area, who was an he, who was also an MD, um, who is a managing partner over at Bain Capital, which oh, is cool. Brookside. So yeah. I don't know if you know a member of Bain. When, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. Is it ever the case that you um, birth an idea and then go find the team to rally around yeah. the idea? So or are so people fun. pitching you the idea and then you're funding it? No. So this so Alpine Immune Sciences was a whiteboard. So mm. I, I kind of felt like, um, you know, this whole field of kind of ramping up the immune system had kind of reached the peak and people were just throwing stuff against the wall to kind of see what hit, but there was not really any scientific thought that was being put into it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt like we needed to find a new way to modulate the immune system that people weren't thinking about. And by chance, at some point in time, one of my uh, my son's friends who he plays lacrosse with, his dad called me and said, hey, there's these guys that are leaving Amgen and they have this idea and they really want to pitch you on it to see if you'll fund them. And so we met with them. The idea wasn't exactly what we wanted, but it was close enough. And we kind of sat down with them for nine months. We said, we think your science can be applied in this fashion. We'd like to use it this way and we'll seed fund you. So we seed funded them with about a million to a seed capital. And then nine months later, we did a big deal with another pharmaceutical company. Which That's kind of, awesome. And yeah. when do you normally come in? Not seed round? No, we're almost always. We like to do seed round if we yeah. can. Yeah. And do you take a board seat? Always? We always, almost always take a board seat. Yeah. That's awesome. How many portfolio companies are there? Right well, now. most of them have exited now. Yeah. So there's two, other, there's, there's two other portfolios. Yeah, I tell you, you got that Midas gold touch. <laughs> we have another company called Arvo. We have a company called, which is a prostate cancer company. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a company called Angion that's looking at uh, kidney injury after going on bypass or transplant. Um, those are and and what's, what's aside from trying to impact science and cure cancer and have a major legacy that you're leaving, like what's keeping you up at night right now with your business? I think, you know, with my business right now, I feel like... Um, Alpine Immune Sciences is at the cusp of really, it reminds me a lot of Dendron, to be honest with you, which is we're going after such a big nut. Like the diseases that we're going after are serious inflammatory diseases like lupus, surgical disease, um, uh, graft-versus-host disease when you get a bone marrow transplant, the, actually the graft react against the healthy tissue in the body. Um, and then we have a really novel cancer drug. And I kind of feel like the company's at such a key inflection point that it's getting ready to take off. And I'm just like super excited about seeing where it goes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't stay up a lot about it. We have a great team. So the team that's at Alpine uh, is led by a fabulous scientist named Stanford Peng, uh, who's been around the block a few times. We have a great business development team. Um, so what I've learned over the years is you hire great people and it'll let you sleep at night. Yeah, and let them do their job. <laughs> yeah, just stay out of the way and kind of let them go. And so how do you spend your time right now? I spend my time guiding the strategic vision at Alpine. Um, I, you know, guide a lot with my portfolio partners and companies they're working on. So I spent an hour on the phone this morning talking to my partner about a company that he's at and kind of helping him through some hard times that he's dealing with at a particular company. Mm -hmm. um, but It seems like you're also really good at the people side. The people side is the best side. There's something about a secret sauce, um, like in, in terms of like developing people and empowering them that allows you to create things that are kind of beyond expectations. Mm -hmm. I see you like writing a book. <laughs> First of all, I told you that on the way in. I also see you being a professor. I can see you being, like, I learn every time I'm around you. I love, uh, like I teach science over at Simon's school at SAS. Oh, you do? Yeah. Just what? once a year, yeah. I love oh, once it. a year. Yeah. I go and teach, I teach a class like on kind of where science is going over a period of time. And the kids, like you, you go in there and I was talking about CRISPR and gene editing and these kids these days, man, they get it. Like, they are all over it, especially at that school. Like, they know where the world is going, and they immediately hopped on the same issue that you did, which is ethically, is that okay, right? Yeah. And so I think, like, 
Um, to me, teaching, you learn more when you teach than at any other point because, number one, you have to prepare. Yeah. Um, and you're talking about the kids these days because, you know, Simon and Max are the same-ish age mm-hmm. and talking about how much they get it. I think it's this weird thing like, yes, we hate social media. Yes, we hate how much is coming at them. And you think about the things they have to deal with, like, God forbid, there's a school shooting. Mm-hmm. But they're also waking up and they're seeing real-time news. Yeah. Imagine that at, for us. In, we, like, ninth grade that you're like, oh, earthquake and bubble, you know, yeah. stuff that gives you anxiety. Yeah. I think, you know, that's the advantage is they are getting real-time news. Um, the question is how are they using it, right? Yeah. And I think it's up, up to us as parents to really determine how do you want your kids to filter the news and the information that they're seeing. Like, I'll email Aiden, you know, once a week and say, hey, what's the best podcast you've listened to this week? And, you know, he usually tell me what's going but on. But how do you get them to do it? I think it's their peer group, and I think, you know, as bad as social media can be, the flip side of it is it can also be a big motivator for the kids mm-hmm. if it's kind of used in the right context. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, I mean, we're talking about the kids now, and, and that's probably my favorite is seeing you as a dad. Um, I feel really lucky that we're friends and that I get to see you like that. Like, you seem very intentional about it um, in that you want to be a teacher but also a friend and what types of conversations do you have with them? Yeah, you know, um, I would say being a parent is one of the hardest jobs. Um, and it's also by far the most rewarding job. And it's the one that pays kind of the longest-term dividends, right? And uh, look, my friend who's dying right now, right? The, when his kids dropped out of school, they left kind of big travel expeditions to go hang out with him. And you only hope that your kids will have that love for you as you're going through things in your life, right? So the conversations I have with my kids are, well, they're very different. The ranges from Aiden, you know, to Simon. Simon's mm-hmm. only, you know, 15 years old, and Aiden's 24 years old. Uh, but we'll talk about with Aiden, you know, where the world is going from a political perspective, what candidates he likes, uh, how he sees the industry going. Uh, he may criticize me on things that we're communicating about the company and give me advice on that. You know, that's or, great. Or, or Noah and I will listen to podcasts when we're driving together, and we'll talk about things, and then we'll just. Talk about life. Like, you know, we try to take one family vacation a year. You always spend quality time doing physical activities with them, too. I mean, you're out mountain biking with them and skiing, and that's yeah. quality time. They're not on their phones. Oh, yeah, we're not on our phones at all. So I I love the beautiful part of being in the mountains and mountain biking with anybody, right, particularly your kids, is it's real, right? And so one of the key things is, is most of the world we live in is artificial, right? So... Currency is artificial. Uh, continents are real, but countries are, are artificial. Right? It's, man, it's man-made. Religion is completely artificial. This is such a crazy mm-hmm. concept. <laughs> so, I never thought about any of this. But the but the natural world is so real that you, when you're in it, you can't help but kind of feel alive, right? And so when you go through those experiences together that's really outside of your control, it's not a controlled environment, you tend to really grow close with not just your kids but whoever you're back there with. And that experience, that natural experience where you really live life is one that I cherish with my kids probably the most. What are you most worried about for them? Yeah. Like what, what kind of world we're living in? Well, I, I, there's no doubt that we're living in a very divisive world right now. Um, when I think about my kids, I think um, there's a couple of things. One, you can't deny what's going on from a climate perspective. And uh, climate change is real. And if you look at kind of the data coming out of the observatories in Hawaii, for example, you know, you were seeing a real rise in global temperatures. Um, And rolling those back is very concerning to me. And the U.S. has to play a central role in that. And one of my sons, Noah, um, actually worked at a company this summer called Level 10, 
which is kind of like a, a big web consolidator of clean energy and uses all these different developers of clean energy projects and then resells them to companies like Starbucks or Amazon or Nordstrom so they can make sure they're using clean energy uh, in their businesses. So I think climate change is one that is going to be central to you know what the next generation and my grandkids' generation really looks like. And if we ignore it, it's only going to get worse. And mm -hmm. I feel like it's accelerating. The other part, I think, is education. Um, you know, we all send our kids, and most of us now send our kids to school. Um, and most of them go on to college. And college has become, in some ways, um, you know, it's... A like very, irrelevant? <laughs> it's, well, I would say it's been commoditized, you know. And I question whether it's worth, you know, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to send our kids to college if they're not getting a technical degree. And, you know, it's frustrating for some of them to go to school when they see the whole world progressing. At least for my son, Aiden, he's like, I'm wasting my time here. I, I completely get that. You know, I want to get out and I want to kind of change the world. And here I am kind of studying, you know, literature. And I'm conflicted by it because my son, because Max is very practical. Mm -hmm. And he's like, why do I need to learn about like Iliad and Odyssey? Yeah. Like, it's not going to be that when I grow up, mom. I want to be in business. And... As a recruiter, I'm thinking, well, we need to give you the most options, which is sadly reflective of looking at what schools people go to, kind of like indicates how smart they are, but yeah. it's so ridiculous. Do you believe that? So do you think? No, I'm not a recruiter that thinks like that, but there are plenty of, I mean, especially when I was in New York, they would start with, um, you know, let's look at one of the top 10 schools and then we have to open up the funnel, but we start with kind of the smallest selection yeah. that we can. Yeah, you had Dan on your podcast. I would say um, one of the key things for going to the Harvards and the Dukes and the Princetons and the Yales is the networking. Oh, 100%. That you make there. Yeah, right? oh, for sure. I would say that the uh, the technical education that you get there is probably very similar to other you know, state schools that mm -hmm. are strong, like Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, UCLA, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the networking that you get there is exceptional. So the question is, is can you replicate that at other schools? And there's no doubt in today's world that you can or you it. can replicate it out of school. Yeah. No, you can do it very easily. Yeah. I mean, if that that's the skill and the muscle that I would want my kids to learn, like yeah. the, the high EQ, yeah. understanding people, I think is just as important. Yeah. So I think education reform and kind of changing the system to be, as Max said, more didactic, more kind of hands-on learning will motivate kids and allow them to go into fields that they really want to study, right, and learn more in. And where do you think we are, I mean, as a country on that? Like if, if zero is like we are the, at the worst and 10 is we're killing it. Yeah, I think we're at two, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've really even started to address kind of education reform and prepare ourselves for the next century, right? We're still using, like, think about a textbook. We should be using much more relevant, like they should be listening to podcasts. Like, 100%. Like fuel. <laughs> <laughs> what fuels you, kids? Yeah. yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. And also, I know that you like to put yourself in kind of crazy situations. Um, we, Mitch and I are both, for the listeners, involved with Brothers for Life um, with Israeli wounded soldiers. And some of them have gotten new prosthetic legs, and Mitch took them out to like the back country. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, let's go, let it rip. And I know that you do that with your kids too, and kind of push people to um, to push themselves. Have you ever gotten in a scary situation doing that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you know the like story. Like you're still putting yourself at risk all the time. Yes. So th there story. was a story where I went out uh, in a you know on a ski oh, tour with a buddy, and this. I had my beautiful dog Boaz with me. And is uh, Boaz still alive? Boaz is still alive. I haven't heard you Matter talk fact, about Boaz in a while. Well, we're going to clone Boaz. Mm. Oh God. <laughs> 
Oh, my God. <laughs> Let's just have Boaz get together with Marley. They'll make a cute little baby. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a classic exercise. We went on an easy ski tour with a buddy on an early season ski day. And, frankly, we hadn't done, you know, we had been out too late the night before, and we hadn't done the appropriate planning. And we got a little loose with our kind of uh, navigation skills that day, and we ended up getting stuck deep uh, in a valley uh, with two big, huge avalanche drains above us, and we couldn't extract ourselves out of it. So we had to spend the night back there. I remember this. And uh, we beca- we probably came within 12 to 18 hours of dying back there. And it was a major extraction effort. Uh, but when I was lying in the snow at night cuddling my buddy, uh, you kind of think, am I ever going to do this again? And I unequivocally in my yes. head thought, yes, yeah, of course. I'm definitely going to do because it. Because you're addicted to that. <laughs> You've got that adrenaline junkie thing. It wasn't that. It what was, was it? It was, um, this is frustrating and we could do better. You know, and I felt like I brought my whole ski team together that I go backcountry skiing with. And I said, you know, we've been pushing it because we're good skiers, but we haven't been educated the way we need to be. And we all went and got our level one and level Mm. two avalanche certification and became much more um, deliberate in the way we spend our days out in the mountains. And as you're talking about this, I'm just seeing, like, is there a correlation with you as a leader in the way that you lead your company this way? Like, hey, we can do better. Let's learn from our mistakes. Like, how have you gone about building culture over time? I think so. What I see a lot, um, there's a lot of money out there right now. And money is being thrown around at, you know, very good management teams with, you know, perhaps not so great ideas. Or Uh, the other way around. Great (laughs) ideas with terrible management teams. Maybe. That's really the formula that most VCs are using right now is um, is they're they're throwing money at at, um, at really good teams and saying they'll figure it out even if it's a shitty idea, and uh, that's probably true. Good management teams will find a path forward. Uh, with my management team, I think you know mediocrity is a place where a lot of people kind of end up, but it's also the most you know dangerous place. So. Um, what I really try to get our team to do and what we're pushing for right now is, yeah, you can swing for kind of the, you know, the doubles and the singles, but it's not that much fun. It's much more fun to do what we did at Dendron, which is to change a whole field. Yeah. And so I try to get my team to think big and, and make And how fun. do you do that? Uh, build in a concept that uh, failure is, um, is not true failure. Like you have to, if you're not really failing, then you're not really trying. Like you have to accept failure as a consequence of creating great things. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's that, true. It, no, yeah. it is true. And also, that's the only way to learn. It's the only way to learn, and in our industry, it's the only way to create really special products, right? Yeah. Every really great product, every really meaningful, transformative event, uh, it was really the event of someone pushing it forward in the face of a very high probability failure. Yeah. Are there any CEOs, not necessarily in your industry, but just in general, that you admire? I mean, it's hard Don't not to... say Elon Musk. Well, uh, I am going to say Elon Musk. I've had Musk. like five people well, that I've asked about. What Elon do they Musk. admire about him? Um, well, just how how bold he is. And um, he just gets after it. And he just believes in his idea and he pursues it relentlessly. He's passionate. Yeah. But he's I mean, brilliant. Yeah, he's certainly brilliant. Um, and what I admire about Elon is probably a different thing. I mean, I love his boldness. Um, I, I think his brashness is something that I don't emulate, right? Mm-hmm. Even though people might say I'm brash like Elon. You're uh, not brash. <laughs> you were scary when I first met you, but you're not. You're actually a teddy bear. You're, you're yummy. What, what I love about Elon is he saw something happening before other people did, right? And so if you look at kind of the world today, um, we live in a very kind of, um, what technology has done, it's 
completely shrunk the planet down. I remember when I was in college, I did this program called Semester at Sea, and I circumnavigated- Oh, where'd you go? I circumnavigated the globe. I can't tell you where I went. It would take the whole podcast, but- um, we went all over the world. I'd never really been around the world. Is that like a six-month deal? It was like four months. Yeah, I have but, some friends who did that. And my oldest son did it, Aiden, and my middle son, Noah, just finished it as well. It is an eye-opening experience when you travel the world um, by sea, right? And the reason is is you le- you come home and you realize that it's a small planet, right? It's a really, really small planet that we need to take care of. And I think what Elon saw was that... Um, the planet is being shrunk, and we need to find a way to deal with the climate change issue. And he brought that together with really kind of amazing engineering and created a product that, to me, was very exciting. And you couple that with kind of what he's doing with SpaceX and the fact that we can't live on this planet forever and we need to go live on a different planet for a variety of different reasons. Like, let's say we do live to 120 years old, right? Which that, planet do you want to go to? You asked me. I don't want to live on another planet other than this. I love this planet. It's got water and mountains. And I was just thinking the other day as I'm driving out to Boulder, like Noah and I both said, this is the best planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best planet ever. I, you know, who wants to, like, it's just nice. Like, And I don't think you can take it for granted. In where, where are you learning all this stuff that you learn? I mean, what are you reading? What do you do as your rituals? And I, don't I compare yourself to Dan Levitan, because his, oh, his were nuts. I was, Dan, I was just asking casually. He's like, these are my... Like, oh, my God. Shit. Dan Levitan made me feel like a slouch. On. I felt like such a schlub after yeah. that one. Yeah, no, Dan's amazing. Um, I tend, a slouch and a schlub. I tend to uh, <laughs> pick up a lot of different books and uh, maybe not finish all of them, but I grab a bunch of ideas off of them, right? So whether it's Sapiens or Homo Deus, you know, those are kind of key, you know, books that have kind of come out recently. Right now I'm reading this book by Thomas Freeman called uh, Thank You for Being Late. Have you heard <laughs> it? I've heard of it, but oh, I, don't it's fabulous. I don't even know. Oh, it's wonderful. It's uh, he's. I love the way Thomas Freeman writes and... Uh, it's What's a, it about? It's really about kind of where we're going uh, from an innovation perspective. Ah. We're at this really important phase right now where, you know, the big tech companies are starting to get into serious healthcare issues. So Amazon, you know, Google, Microsoft, um, Apple, everyone's kind of playing in the intersection between biology and data. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really going to kind of change the world going forward. Like we'll look back at 2019, 2020 as a key inflection point like we did back in 2007, mm-hmm. right? And do you think that um, all the government regulations that they're talking about with these large companies, are you for it, against it? Like, what do you think? I don't I don't have a strong opinion on it. I think that you know, too much government regulation is going to stifle innovation. I think we should be very careful about that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think that... We- you know, like, who would you trust? Like, what do you trust most on the web? Like, if you were to go to one I web, mean, Amazon. <laughs> yeah, Amazon. So I know if, what I'm getting. Yeah. You totally trust it. I do. I feel oh, the yeah. same way. And I think, like, you're going to see Amazon, uh, you know, with what they're doing with the insurance industry right now. They're going to be a major player in healthcare. Yeah. 100%. So you got your eye on them. I think that they're the ones that are probably at the, you know, people don't see it yet, but they're going to be the ones that really you'll trust to put your healthcare data mm-hmm. on an Amazon website. And then the question is, what does that mean to you? Yeah, and so you you also said that you're asking your sons the conversations that you're having, what podcasts they're listening to. What else are you listening to? Believe it or not, I like Joe Rogan. Okay, uh, I really like. Uh, and it, so Aiden turned me on to this um, uh, Nouvelle Ravikant. Do you know him? He's, Is that the one that the little the guy who's doing the um, Twitter quick? Yeah, quick? yeah, yeah. I'm listening to that one also. I love that one. He's fabulous. He's really good. I've, yeah. There's so many in my phone though. This is the problem with podcasts. Uh, he has some really interesting concepts. I love this guy. Yeah. And Joe Rogan, like the Elon Musk interview mm-hmm. with Joe Rogan, I thought like you can criticize that for everything you want, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, if you really listen to the details of that interview, 
it was incredibly clear that Elon had a huge grasp of the science and the engineering challenges that he was working with at SpaceX and Tesla. And that's unique. I, I bet you can bring a lot of CEOs in that don't have that technical grasp. It reminded me very much, I, I remember when Gates came in um, to talk to the biotech community. It must have been in kind of the mid-2000s. And uh, we all were kind of sitting there like, what's Bill really going to do? Yeah, how does he know? How does he know? He doesn't know anything about biotech and all the complexities. And sure enough, he's up on stage in five minutes and he's talking about GMP manufacturing and the complexities of creating biologics and some of the challenges of cold storage. And it's like... (laughs) Yeah, he's running circles around (laughs) everyone. Yeah. He's smart guy. Pretty quickly, yeah. Smart guy. The ultimate question is, what fuels you? What fuels me is uh, being a lifelong learner. Um, I think it's a bigger challenge than... Like it's a word that's used commonly, but to really be a lifelong learner, you you have to be very kind of diligent and like being proactive, associating with the right people, um, trying to push yourself outside your comfort zone. Because I think so many people, particularly as you get older, uh, and particularly if you've made enough money, they don't you kind of phone it in. They kind of yeah. phone it in, and I think to kind of push yourself outside your comfort zone. Um, is the most important thing. And I think if you can do that, you will be a lifelong learner, whether that's learning how to climb new mountains or build new companies or form better relationships, be a better parent. Like uh, Those are all things that I think make make me excited about the next day. I love that. I agree completely. Thanks for being on the podcast. That was fun, Shauna. You're the best. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. 